Hello, movie marathoners, and welcome to episode 89 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me this week is fellow Evergreen Podcast Network member. He's the host of Seven Minute Stories, Aaron Califato. Aaron, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me and, and, and spending your time watching this movie from my 11-year-old, 10-year-old brain. So thank you for putting yourself through this. <laughs> No, it was, uh, well, we'll get into it, but it was my first time seeing the film. So um, we can we can go ahead and reveal what that is. I mean, it's in the title of the episode, of course, but this week, the episode is a normal marathon episode. But for our full-length feature review, we'll be heading back to the 90s to review the coming-of-age sports film, Rookie of the Year. So before heading to the start line, or maybe I should say, you know, the starting plate, home plate, maybe, that's a baseball term, right? We'll go ahead and just warm up first with some film news, then we'll move over to our main review of Rookie of the Year, and since this film has been out for decades, we'll be running straight into spoilers. Um, So if you haven't seen the film, we'd recommend checking it out before listening to everything, but it's not really a super spoiler-heavy film or anything like that. It's no sixth sense. So finally, after that, we'll round out the episode as usual with our point two section where we discuss what else we've been watching. So let's go ahead and warm up with some film news. Now, because of the release of episodes, we're actually recording this episode a few weeks before it'll be released. So like any film news that we talk about will be a bit outdated by the time that the episode comes out. So instead of talking about a specific piece of film news, I thought we would talk briefly about the general state of movie going at the theater. Obviously, things have been closed for about a year now. And movie theaters were one of the many things that took a huge hit because of that. But now vaccines are rolling out and movie theaters are starting to do pretty solid business again. And that's nice. It's, it's good to hear. As somebody who likes going to the movies, it's good that people are doing that now. But we also know that some of the biggest hits of whatever this potential summer blockbuster season is starting to be we're seeing that those hits are being released simultaneously into theaters and onto streaming services. So for example, Black Widow will be coming to theaters and Disney Plus, and then any Warner Bros. films like The Suicide Squad and Space Jam 2, those will be headed to HBO Max. So we did see that despite Godzilla vs. Kong being on HBO Max, a lot of people still went to see that in theaters. So it kind of begs the question, will this be a release strategy that we see even after things have returned to whatever the quote-unquote new normal is going to be. So Aaron, I know you can't speak obviously to the movie-going public as a whole, but personally, I just want to talk to you about what you think about this idea of simultaneously releasing movies in the theaters and on streaming, um, and what you think about that potentially becoming the new norm for releases. Yeah, so it's interesting because I come at it from obviously my own point of view, And growing up, you know, we went to the movies a little bit, you know, summertime and things like that. Um, But, you know, I spent a lot of summers uh, with my my grandfather and my grandparents. And even at my own house with my with my parents and my parents split up. So going back and forth between two households, we watched a lot of movies inside tons of like VHS tapes. I'm kind of dating myself here, but that's what it was. I'm 37 (laughs) now. So. I, in the 80s and 90s, as a young, young kid, and then obviously growing up, it was, you know, it, it was VHS tapes, DVDs, and watching films at home. 
And so I would say 90% of my movie watching experience was that way. So that skews my perspective a little bit because I actually valued the intimacy of being at home and watching a film with nobody there bothering me. Mm-hmm. It, it, it Now, you don't get the same kind of sound quality. You don't get the same kind of theatrical experience. You don't get the same kind of community feel that you get with people in that room. So there, and trust me, there's benefits. And I, and I love going to the movies. But there is a special place in my heart for being able to just go into a room or your house or your you know, your bedroom or wherever you watch your living room, whatever you do, maybe one or two people, or maybe just you and watch a film. To me, there's that sort of the intimacy of the message between the filmmaker and then the audience and the audience is just you. So I like the idea of, of streaming. I've been using it myself on HBO max and stuff like that. And that's been cool, but it would be sad if, you know, we lived in a world, let's pretend that COVID kept going or the kind of restrictions kept going and there'd be this alternate universe where nobody could go to the movies anymore, that would suck. So, you know, is there a way in which there's a percentage distribution of like things that get streamed and obviously we have streaming services, but is there a way to keep both of those worlds alive where you can go have that experience to, you know, at a movie or at home? And I think too, and the last thing I'll say is like genre has a lot to do with it. You know what I'm saying? Like if you go and see a comedy, it's great in a movie theater because right. if it's a good movie and everyone's laughing, it's that communal sense. And it's that call and response kind of deal that you get with live theater and things like that. Action movies, science fiction movies with the sound design and things like that, that, that has its own kind of style. But then if you get a, a film that's, you know, a little bit more intimate story driven, character driven, quiet, I actually prefer. And if you have a nice home theater at your house being at the home. So I'm a little bit pulled either way. I like the streaming service, but I really don't help. I really don't hope I should say that it takes us into a direction where we can't go to movies anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess your fear of it is just that it's a stepping stone towards completely eliminating theaters, which I think is also my fear, right? Like, I think I I agree with you. I like the idea of being able to choose and, you know, something like Black Widow, for example, I would love to go to see it in theaters and I probably will see it in theaters if, if, they gave me the option to see it at home or in theaters. I'd almost always go to see it in theaters, assuming that I feel comfortable to do so. So I kind of like the idea of maybe that being the new norm of giving people the option. And sure, maybe you have to make it really expensive at home so that there's you know, a financial benefit either way to the company or the studio or whoever's fronting the money for the movie. But I don't really see... It necessarily as a bad thing that they're saying, well, hey, put the choice in the consumer's uh, hands to decide how they want to consume the content. To me, it seems like a win-win. Yeah. And there's that. And the last thing I'll say is there's that balance, right, of the sustainability of the model where, like you said, whether it's pricing increases or if, you know, there also might be a world in which the theaters, the amount of them, right, get reduced. That's another thing is I don't know because I don't know enough about economics and population and, you know how that would affect you. But you would think if there's less people overall going to movies, then the locations would have to shrink to be able to sustain just keeping those plays heated. It's got to be ridiculously expensive, especially when you're in larger markets with, with super high rent prices and stuff like that. So there is a balance that needs to be met, but it would be great to have both of those options. I agree. Yeah, that is definitely a concern that like the, the more mid-sized boutique theaters and stuff may not be able to support that if, you know, 
half the population or I guess whatever, half the box office is lost to streaming services, even though the companies will still get all that money. So I, I get that. That's, that's probably not something that we have enough experience to comment on what we know exactly would be the right balance between that. But it's a good point to to keep in mind. So either way, um, you know, I think I will certainly be seeing Black Widow at home, unfortunately. But, um, you know, if they continue to do this for films in August, in September, when the vaccine has been out for a longer period of time, who knows? Maybe we'll be back in theaters, even if we do have the option to see it at home. Well, let's uh, let's head over to our main review of the day, and that is a film called Rookie of the Year. So first, a synopsis. When an accident miraculously gives a boy an incredibly powerful pitching arm, he becomes a major league pitcher for the Chicago Cubs. Rookie of the Year stars Thomas Ian Nichols and Gary Busey, and it is written by Sam Harper, and it is directed by Daniel Stern. Hey, Rowan Gardner! Like most kids. So you coming? Henry Rowan Gardner. Yeah! Had the usual summer plans. Hang out with friends. Hey, not so fast. I'm gonna let you do the laundry when you get home. You're too kind, Mom. Ask out some girls. Why don't you talk to Vicky Freak? We have nothing in common. So? And go out to some ball games. Throw on the cheese! Throw on the high! Stinky! Lamburger! But this summer, catch! Things are going to be a little different. How long will I have to be in the cast? August. Hi, Henry! Now rotate from the shoulder, slowly. Oh! Whoa! Funky butt-loving! Did he say funky butt-loving? Those tendons have healed a little tight. Because this summer... Henry won't be rooting for the Cubs. Gosh, Henry, you can play for the Cubs. He'll be pitching for them. Hi, Henry. Welcome to the big show. Nah! So before we dive into this 90s classic, Aaron, when we discussed uh, what a collaboration between movie marathoners and seven-minute stories would look like, you were really excited to talk about Rookie of the Year. We had a couple other films that we were talking about, but you you were like, we, do, we should talk about Rookie of the Year. And uh, I was excited because it, it was a film that I hadn't seen, although I had heard things about it. And I know you have a seven minute stories episode about your relationship to Rookie of the Year and why you like the film so much. And I think listeners should definitely check that out. It's it's a it's a really good episode. I'll include it in the show notes or a link to it. But briefly, can you just talk a little bit about what the film means to you and when you first saw it? Yeah, so you're right. There is definitely a personal relationship that I have to the film. And I accentuated it in that seven-minute story. Uh, and, you know, it really traverses this story of, you know, myself and my dad, a father and a son, baseball, growing up in the Midwest. I'm from Cleveland. Chicago's only a few hours away. Um, two teams that were historically in my lifetime very bad. Uh, <laughs> early on in their histories, they were good. But then over the last you know decades, they were atrocious teams. So much so that they made movies about it, like Rookie of the Year, and he had Major League. Uh, it is, that's how bad they were. Um, <laughs> and then I traverse through that to the point where we get at the end of the seven minute story, where I actually encounter the actor who plays Henry, the main character in the film, and that was a surreal moment as well. So it's been this very interesting film that did two things. One, it was important to me growing up watching that film because the themes of the film were very similar to mine. My parents were getting divorced or already divorced, single mother, 
um, growing up in the suburbs, kind of trying to figure out, you know, so I could identify with this very generic, but for me was very real storyline um, with the backdrop, right? But then you had this sensationalized element of this kid and what he's able to do with the Cubs as a pitcher. And then for me, it was really an escape to that potential universe of like, okay, I'm in a situation like him and my dad's trying to teach me how to pitch. Who knows? Maybe I'll pitch for the Indians or I'll pitch for the Cubs or, <laughs> or something magical will happen. So it was really a movie about, and as silly as the premise is, right? And you, we know who it's made for. It's made for kids. Right. It did make a big deal difference to me because I could identify with it. I also was the same or around the same age as the main character. So for me, it was that was the inroad. And at that age, you have to understand how I'm describing this. This is through my 11-year-old prism. Uh, but it was a spectacular movie. It was funny. And in the back of my mind, I was like, hell, maybe that's possible for me. Who knows? And I'm 37 now. And when I watch it still, I'm like, I don't know, my shoulder? Who knows? Maybe I can... <laughs> Maybe I can pitch. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question because, you know, I I said it earlier in the episode that I had never seen this film before. So the first time I saw this film was over the weekend. Um, I'm not 11. I'm what, what, 25 or something. So a little bit out of the wheelhouse of what this film is targeting, but I still found it really fun and, and silly and, and um, like stupid in, in a good way. But I'm curious, Aaron, like, has your experience with the film or how you evaluate it, how you enjoy it, has that changed over the years? Or do you still feel the exact same way as when you saw it that very first time, you know, like, is the nostalgia that strong? Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously when I'm in the moment and the suspension of disbelief is occurring as an 11 year old movie feels bigger, the acting seems better. The plot right. seems more realistic. <laughs> so again, that's the prism that I'm looking through at the time. The experience was like, this is an amazing movie. In my 20s and 30s, I'm like, okay, well, it's silly, but at the same time, the nostalgia is that strong. It really is. And like I said, I kept revisiting it as a way to kind of remember, and it helped me and my brother through a difficult time when, when our parents are getting divorced. That's painful. And, and, and you felt a partnership with the characters in that movie. And, and two, you know, there's the themes I'm sure we're going to chat about is like, you know, new father figures coming into the fold. All these things were very real to me. And so, yeah, it's changed. Obviously, I'm looking at it now and the movie is not winning Oscars, but it wasn't built to be that way. But for me, in a personal way, it's still one of those movies. And I know a lot of people from my age group carry movies like that with them and are now starting to revisit. There's this sort of nostalgia thing that's occurring in our culture where it's like cool now to watch Karate Kid. Like that shit was my jam. I was the Karate <laughs> Kid. Like I was doing that back. And so... I think what I'm saying is it is still relevant, even though the film itself, obviously there's much better films and where it ranks and all that kind of stuff. But it's my connection with the character too. The main character was pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, I still, man, I still watch it and uh, still get a kick out of it when I do. That's good. Yeah. Um, th there's a couple of things that I, I really admired about this movie. And one of them was the fact that it is just a pure wish fulfillment film. And I kind of find it funny how incredibly uninterested the film is at explaining what's going on in the film right you know that there's no like bs i mean there sort of is there's sort of like a, a a medical reason for why he got the magic arm but it may as well have just been that he wished upon a star 
right? And then he was granted those powers. Like it's that silly. And and if you think about it for half a second, none of it makes sense. But the film doesn't care. It doesn't care that it doesn't make sense. It just says, let's have fun with this. And I feel like that's a very 90s thing to do. I think nowadays, a lot of films kind of bend over backwards to make things at least somewhat make sense. And this film and other films like it sort of just say, no, we're just going to we're just going to do it. And the audience doesn't really have to think about it too much. It's just going to happen. And we're going to sit with these characters, most of which are completely enjoyable and good people and just have fun with the world that we're in. So I I agree that I could imagine that this would be a very like nice balm of a film, you know, kind of like a comfort film, right? Well, and le- and I'll say one thing and let you go on to the next question, but the I hear you. There it is a wish upon a star kind of deal. However, I I mean they I don't think they were they're savvy in whom they're marketing it to, but what I think they knew and a lot of folks and filmmakers in the 90s knew this. I think they knew kids, or at least the mindset of a child, that you only need one thing that sort of makes sense to make the mm. world believable, right? I played, I still, I'm a pod, I'm telling stories every week. So I'm imagining things, even true stories, you're adding an essence to them, right? So there's a, a, there's an element of imagination that you have to have, that kids have. And I, I try to teach my kids, you want to keep that into adulthood. So in my mind, dude, like when that guy fell on his arm, I'm like, you know, tendons could heal weird. <laughs> I mean, you never know, right? I mean, sure, so the I'm, tendons well, could yeah. be so tight they because they even give the x-ray. They're like, the tendons are so tight that now he's got. So it was that one little moment fragment in reality. And if you can believe it, you know, if you're watching it, and I, I, I'm sure when you're watching it in your 20s, you're like, not a chance. Like, What are you talking <laughs> about? But when you're 11, you're like, it could happen. And yeah. once you have that belief and possibility, you're in the narrative. No, I, I mean, it makes sense. And and it's sort of something similar to like one of the the baseball movies that's sort of my rookie of the year, I guess, is The Sandlot. That's one. It's a, I think it's, you know, what is it? Early 2000s, maybe. Love that film. Grew up on it. 90s. 90s. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, And so there's the, the scene where he's in the outfield for the first time and Benny's just like, all you have to do is stick your arm up and catch the ball. And like, no way could a kid accurately hit a ball so that it goes straight into the mitt of the kid. But like, you know, that's one of those things that it makes sense. Yeah. All you have to do is stick it up and the ball will go in it. And and it's like a a nice moment. And you're right. A lot of these films have those things where it's like just enough sense for kids to be like, yeah, that could happen. It's not likely, but it could. So that's a, that's a good point. Just a quick little Sandlot story for you. So <laughs> uh, the Sandlot was one of my favorite movies too. And again, it's baseball. It's America's past. I, I'm in love with sports movies. So, But what's interesting about that movie is um, the guy who played Babe Ruth, who comes to him in a dream, comes to Benny, and he's like, you know, follow your heart, kid. You'll never go wrong. That guy is a guy named Art LaFleur. And Art LaFleur is a famous character actor that you've seen in a lot of movies, including Field of Dreams, another baseball movie. Mm-hmm. When I'm in college at university and I joined a film organization, it was like university film organization, we had a budget to bring in guests. And we ended up inviting and becoming friends with Art LaFleur, Babe Ruth from the freaking Sandlot. So the we Sultan bring of him swap? in. Th- yes. We bring, <laughs> yeah, we bring him in to the university. He judges a film festival. He's the nicest guy in the world. 
we know him, my friends from university and, and a lot of my filmmaking friends still know him to this day. And he came to that school and it was right at that time where, you know, he's just a character actor. So if he's walking around Hollywood or wherever, nobody really knows him. But when he came to that university, he's around kids my age within 10 years, your age, right? 20, like, you know, mid 20s, mm-hmm. mid 30s. That age group all grew up watching him. So I'm walking next to him on the street. And he says to me, this was one of the best weekends of my life because for a weekend I felt like a star. <laughs> and it was the coolest story ever. And I'm going to do a seven minute story about that. So I'll let you know when that comes out. But I'm glad you like The Sandlot. It's one of the best movies out there. Yeah, no, I, I love it. It's it's such a just classic. Um, I mean, this one has very similar feelings to it that it's like a hangout film. It's a kid's hangout film. And that was one of the other points that I was going to make about this is that there's not really a plot with a quote unquote central antagonist. There are some not good people that sort of, you know, take advantage of Henry or or do some questionable things that you're like, oh, I don't like that guy. But there's not like a um, bad team that they're fighting or there's not, I mean, other than the Mets, I guess, but there's there's not any real adversary for Henry. And so in a way it is that fill that full wish fulfillment thing of just what would happen if a kid got to be a part of a major league baseball team. And so I I think that really works for the film. Like it's not bogged down in this kind of like conflict that would feel unnecessary. I agree. Did you have like a, do you have a favorite character in the film or anything like that? Cause there was one guy that I really enjoyed in the film, but I want to throw to you first, Aaron. Yeah. So, um, I obviously Henry was my favorite because he was my age. I, I could see myself in him. Right. So that was probably my favorite, but, um, Chet Sedman or, uh, my man, Gary Busey, my yep. man comes in there with a the performance of a lifetime Yeah, because he really had a nuance to the way he approached it. And I remember being like, man, he's kind of firm, but also like open. And he kind of like in his professional life was gruff, but he kind of opened up a vulnerability and I was always like, man, if I had a stepdad, you know, I was out, my mom was dating at the time. I wish I had one like Chet Stedman or whatever his name <laughs> is. But yeah, Gary Busey's performance was fantastic. And uh, I didn't know that Daniel Stern directed the film. I didn't realize that until later on. Um, and what I think his character was kind of goofy. Um, there were some moments where he was like trapped in that cage. And he's like, but my brother and I, I remember just rolling. We thought that was the funniest thing. Now at 30 something, I'm like, that's just annoying as shit. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to exactly ape what you said. Uh, Gary Busey, I loved him. He was by far my favorite person in the film. And especially because, as I was saying, since there's not really an antagonist or anything, he's kind of poised to be the antagonist, right? And the film is sort of poised to, if it was like a different type of film to say, wow, this guy's going to be angry that this kid is upseating him and taking his place on the team and then eventually i'm sure he'll come around and you know you've seen that arc before where Mm -hmm. the guy who's originally kind of the antagonist becomes a friend and helps him out and stuff but no he's he's really quickly is just like super nice becomes a father figure as you're saying and i found the performance just surprisingly full of heart in an in a film that like otherwise didn't have too much depth to any of the actual characters or anything so I, i completely agree with that and then uh, the other thing, I didn't even realize as I was writing my notes that it was the director, but the Phil Brickman played by Daniel Stern, yeah. I I couldn't stand him. It, it felt like um, Michael Scott, if you didn't have as talented or as, you know, like competent, I guess, of a comedic presence as Steve Carell, 
Um, not to insult Daniel Stern or anything, but I do do think that that type of obnoxious manic energy has to be very focused for it to be effective. And I didn't find him particularly funny in this film. Yeah, as a kid, I did not so much as an adult, and I agree he was great in Home Alone. <laughs> not the not the best rookie of the year, but to a ten year old, it was like yeah, it was a kind of a goofy guy. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, other than that, I I thought that you know a lot of the other characters were a lot of fun. Um, but definitely Gary Busey was, was a standout. I don't know who the actor was who played the mother. She was really cool too. She was like, there was a, a, a subtlety. I know we're talking like very critical of this film, uh, but there was a subtlety and it reminded me of, she kind of had a struggle, you know, with her kid and, and the boyfriend and trying to, and I just remember that her floated at the end, floated. Like, <laughs> I just remember she was just sweet. And I was like that. She seemed like a cool mom. Yeah, and that was another thing that they just had a great relationship and there was no conflict there. And I feel like another film would kind of have a conflict there. And then the stepdad or the potential stepdad or something, he was like pretty quickly a dick. And then we kind of moved on. (laughs) I found the film very effortlessly enjoyable, if that makes sense. Like it didn't require a lot of um, energy to enjoy myself. And it was just a very relaxing experience. Totally agree. You know, so you were mentioning that you wanted to play for the Cleveland Indians, right? If this happened to you, um, do you know what position you would play? Would you want to be pitcher? Or would there be like another position that you somehow got magical powers to to excel at? What would it be? Well, it probably would be center field uh, because I always wanted to be Kenny Lofton. Kenny Lofton was a player for the Cleveland Indians in the 90s, mm. great leadoff hitter in an era where there was a lot of steroids and he seemed like a clean player, um, never had that sort of body shift, you know, from like, oh, I'm, you know, 160 pounds to like, now I'm 260 and my head is the size of a boulder. <laughs> so he, and I don't know for sure, but he played in a tough era where pitchers and um, bat- a lot of folks were using performance enhancing drugs. So I admired his work ethic. He was a fantastic base stealer, but he was also a great center fielder. And he and uh, Ken Griffey Jr. were both fantastic center fielders. And so I think I would want to be a center fielder jumping, just, you know, stopping the home run from going yeah. over the fence. And I think in Crawling fact, the, the wall. end, yes, I over the wall. Yeah, falling over the wall. I think at the end of Rookie of the Year, if I remember this right, it actually ends with this. We're talking spoilers, right? So it ends with Henry, I think running and like catching a ball as a cub but then it flashes forward to him catching like saving a home run over the fence and he's playing with like his friends and stuff like that so i love that idea of jumping around having agility and and stealing home runs for people so i'd pick uh i'd pick center fielder nice i'd probably go with third base that's what i played when i was in little league when i wasn't playing um you know outfield which is was sort of just code for like put the put the put the kids that aren't as good at at baseball in uh in the outfield. So when they brought me into like the infield, I was like, yes, finally I, I feel validated and part of this team and and they put me in third base and and so that was that was what I would do. I don't know what sort of magical powers would make you good at third base, but that's all right. You gotta have a strong arm because when they hit that ball to you, you gotta come across your body. And make that crazy throw to first base. That's awesome. Yeah, that's you played true. third baseman. That's a tough spot to play. You must have been pretty good. <laughs> well, no, I I I was not. <laughs> but 
it's fine. I've I've given up on my goals to be a professional uh, baseball player. I, I moved on. I'm not I, salty I, I, about clearly it. Clearly, I have all. not. Clearly, <laughs> I have not. Well, let's go ahead and take a break here. And when we return, we will continue our conversation about rookie of the year. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back. And just kind of wrapping up our conversation here about Rookie of the Year, let's quickly talk PRs. This is a segment of the podcast where we ask if this film is anyone's best performance or to use the running-related term, their personal record. So Aaron, is this Gary Busey's PR? Are we in agreement? Or is that a little too... So I have seen Gary Busey in a lot of films. I have not studied his filmography like I have, you know, Marlon Brando, uh, James Dean. I went to, I was a theater major, so, and then I went to New York to, I started off traditionally as wanting as, as an actor. So I trained at a conservatory. I spent a lot of time studying actors. Um, so I've studied a lot of them, Robert Duvall, some of these, you know, cats who are just incredible, uh, Harvey Keitel, but I never studied Gary Busey. He has some <laughs> great performances. I've probably seen five to 10 of his films, but out of those five to 10 films, I have to be honest with you is as again, it's rookie of the year. I thought he was great in this movie. I, I would say that that's definitely his PR. I, I, from what I have seen of Busey, for sure. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen many of his other films either, so it's a very small, limited pool for me. But I would say that, too. I, I find that most of the time and again, as he has gotten older, he kind of becomes a caricature of himself. And it's sort of like that's Gary Busey being Gary Busey. But he's not doing that here. And I found that refreshing. That's probably more just a reflection of my lack of knowledge of films pre 90s. But um I'm working on it. <laughs> Any other like PRs, do you think, or no? Well, I think, yeah. And I, I would say just on the Busey point too, like there's some good stuff he had early on, but you're right. There's something that happens. And I, I talk with a lot of my friends about this and, and I hope that through my career as a storyteller, I can find a way around this too, that like you said, a lot of these guys after a certain time and after a certain amount of success you end up playing a caricature. Um, and, you know, it's, and God, listen, I love De Niro and some of these guys, but even some of their films is right. like, uh, it's kind of silly now. It, and you look, that's just as, yeah, you're, and it's again, it, these guys are fantastic mm-hmm. and their early work. It's fantastic. What happens there? I don't know. And it's not for me to judge, you know, these guys are doing their thing and making money and making movies and, and creating art. But you're right, there's something that happens at the beginning of a career or mid-range through a career before like a gimmick gets kind of taken and monetized. And I think that kind of happened, obviously, with Debussy. Probably for, at least for his career, it may have been the thing that 
that helped him because, you know, mm-hmm. it's easier to get that gimmick to monetize that and to do shorter engagements rather than these, you know, films and, and worrying about getting cast. That's kind of a crazy world to live in. But I think Gary Busey's PR, um, you mentioned Daniel Stern. He's been in other stuff that's so much better. He's a talented actor, <laughs> talented comedian. But I will say, look, uh, Thomas and Nicholas, who I, 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 at the end of my seven minute story, you'll have to see how, if you haven't listened, how I met him and basically what I told him. I told the actor, the person, Thomas himself, or at least tried to, what the movie meant to me. And you can kind of hear what happens there. But I thought he was great. Listen, it's a kid. Um, I have different views about like child actors. I think it's kind of weird. I, I don't think I would ever put my kids in movies. But a lot of stories need have kids in them, and you need a, a really open, sensible, uh, responsive kid. And I th- he reminded me a lot of me, just sort of innocent, kind of like trying to get through, chasing the girl, right? Having the weirdo friends, like this yeah. seemed like my crew that I hung out with, and I, I really related to to Henry's character or to Henry Roland Gardner and, and Thomas's character. So I would say he that's probably a PR he. I know him. Listen, he just, um, I shouldn't say I know him. I know that in his career, he was an American, the American Pie series, uh, Thomas. And then he also just produced or was a producer and acted in a film called Adverse with Mickey Rourke, actually. And it just came out and it's getting some positive reviews. It's kind of like a, uh, a Taken uh, with Liam Neeson, that kind of storyline. Oh, okay. Uh, but I've, but he's been, pre- he was, uh, Thomas gave a performance in that. So I'm saying all this to say, he probably, if he heard this, would be like, it's not my best. I was just a kid. <laughs> but it does take a lot to be natural and to not you know, yeah. worry about the camera. And so I definitely think in some retrospect, in some um, way, that that was a PR for, for Thomas and Nicholas as a, young, as a young actor. I thought he did a great job. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think as long as you're a child that doesn't like actively annoy the viewers, then it's a pretty solid child performance because that's very difficult to do when- you're just trying to, you know, give these lines that were written by adults and make it seem natural. He does that and he feels confident in screen as like a leading kid. Um, he's not super familiar to me. So I was surprised at how natural he felt in the role because I hadn't seen him in a lot of things. But um, yeah, I, th- I think that's a, that's a good one. Let's go ahead and uh, wrap up here. Aaron, can you just summarize your thoughts on Rookie of the Year and give it a score out of 10? All right. Can I preface this score? with can i can i you do can that for your 10. show it's okay well i, I let me just say you. this well let me let me say this and i and you could tell i'm a storyteller because i get a little long-winded here but i but it is important <laughs> to give context because yeah. i don't want people thinking i'm an idiot <laughs> because like i said i understand look um and my answers i'm a better storyteller than i am uh inter- or giving answers let me just say this the question of rating movies is really interesting to me and i say that because there, I'm thinking of doing this story about this guy named Neil Breen, who does these, if you haven't seen Neil Breen on YouTube, he's kind of this mystery guy who does these really terrible films. Now, I say really terrible because when you look at them, it's like, it would be like our 15-year-old selves doing these movies with the effects. Sure. And, but then I was talking to a buddy of mine who's who's a bass player for a band called The Cloud Nothings. And... We are always talking a lot because he's on the road and not this year, but we always have these long conversations. And he, 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 we were talking about this guy, Neil Breen, and he was like, 
but is it really bad? Like what's good and what's bad, right? Because it's the same thing with like the room where like people show up and there's something when something becomes is so sort of like authentically innocent, like breaks form and doesn't really isn't good. It ends up being endearing and you end up in some weird way. There's a cult following that can happen there. Um, and, and in a way we can ask ourselves what's good and what's bad. So I, I, that's a long monologue just to preface that I'm thinking about these things about ratings, but I will say for your show, like on a scale from one to 10, one, you know, it's coming through my perspective as 11 year old kid. So this isn't the Godfather, you know, this isn't, you know, sure. an no, Oscar but that's film. fine. You know, it's not trying to be. It's not trying, as you said earlier, and that that's one of the things that I, I would give it a great, I would give it an eight out of 10 because awesome. I would give it an eight out of 10 because it didn't try to be something it's not. It just told a story through the eyes of an 11 year old or a 10 year old or whatever he was, um, a pre, you know, teen adolescent. And they did that with all the hope and the, the dreams and the magic that exists inside the mind of a kid that age. That's why I give it an eight out of 10 because they created a movie like the way that I thought at that time. And so it wasn't hard for me to imagine. I, in my story, I mentioned in the seven minute story rookie of the year, I mentioned purposely trying to fall on my shoulder. Right. (laughs) So that I, what, what am I doing? But you know, there, there is that kid like thing that happens to us where we're like, Oh, it's possible. So, for those reasons and a lot more, um, and those the more by more I mean ones that are more personal to me and why I liked it, I gotta give this movie eight out of ten, man. I think that's perfectly fair. And you know, ratings are subjective, right? And the you know, ultimately it is a little silly to rate things at all, like movies, right? And it's silly that you could say that, you know, some people would say Godfather is an eight out of ten. And it's true, it's it's ridiculous to even try and compare those movies. But we're going to do it anyways, because podcasting in and of itself is also ridiculous. I'm going to give it about a 6.5, I think. I think it's a very solid movie. Um, It doesn't, to me, transcend films like The Sandlot and things like that that I I hold near and dear to my heart. But of course, that is just my nostalgia showing, right? And so I'm sure people who have never seen Sandlot before and then watch it now will probably be like, it's kind of silly. So I completely agree with everything that you said, though. It's it it does feel like this wish fulfillment film that just enjoys being what it is. And there's not much else to it. So I would definitely recommend it. Um, just for the record, I saw it on Stars. Um, it's available there, and I'm sure you can rent it for on VOD or, or whatever. But since we're the Movie Marathoners podcast, before we kind of move on, let's end our review with a marathon-related question. So for you, Aaron, my question is, if you had to run a marathon and you had to do it with one MLB player, past or present, who would it be? Oh, man, I think I'm just going to take from my earlier answer. I would love to run with Kenny Lofton. Um, I don't think I could keep up because that guy could <laughs> hit his speed from you know home plate to first base or from first place to second base is crazy. Uh, but he was he ran like the wind. And while I know with marathons, I'm assuming that there's a level of pacing that goes in there. Uh, yep. I would love to just be on that journey with him uh, because I remember, you know, if you could compare running around the bases on a micro level to a marathon, 
his run, that home stretch from third base to home. There was no one else who ran like that dude. His hat would come off. His gold chain would be flying everywhere. <laughs> that dude was the man. And so I would run with uh, Kenny Lofton on a, on a marathon. Awesome. My pick, as I am an Arizonian, or that's where I was born, I'm, you know, when I was a kid, we were all about the Diamondbacks. And when I was a kid, the main Diamondbacks were Luis Gonzalez and Randy Johnson. So I would pick one of the two, maybe Randy Johnson, talk to him about what it's like to hit a bird with a ball. I'm sure you've yep. seen that. That's oh, yeah. insane. But um, yeah, those those two guys are kind of my baseball idols insofar as I have, you know, baseball celebrities. I'm not a huge MLB guy, but definitely wouldn't mind running a marathon with Randy Johnson or Luis Gonzalez. Can I ask you one more question before we uh, sign off? Yeah, let's do it. So let me ask you, you've talked a lot about the Sandlot and- You've talked about, we've talked about baseball, and even though you're not a huge baseball fan, like you said, you still had you you played third base. They brought you mm-hmm. in from the outfield. You showed potential. <laughs> uh, you you've watched now rookie of the year. You know Sandlot. We rapped about that for a little bit. Um, what is your in if you got pick one? What is your all time favorite baseball movie? So they are not similar at all, or this film that I'm thinking of is not similar at all to Sandlot or um, Rookie of the Year, but it is still a baseball film and it is Moneyball, which is a wonderful, wonderful film. Not really about baseball, I know, but it is a baseball film, Um, not really a sports film either necessarily, but I love Moneyball. I think it's so great. Brad Pitt absolutely fantastic performance is rookie of the year your favorite or do you have another one it's not i keep rookie of the year again close to my heart but in terms of we talked about rating like higher level of you know ex- film experiences in a different category and things like that it's my probably my my most nostalgic film rookie of the year and it's funny you're talking about moneyball it's a great movie brad pitt mm-hmm. was fantastic i think did aaron sorkin write the screenplay or am i off yep. on that yeah. yeah, I just watched a masterclass with Sorkin, bro. Like that guy, he's he's his pacing. I I love it. I think he wrote for the social network too, that movie, yep. The Social Network. That rhythm, that pacing is just something beautiful. And I'm a big fan of the West Wing too. So mm-hmm. the early years when he wrote for the West Wing, that's sort of like just read it, that sort of and they did a great job. So I agree with you. Moneyball is up there. Moneyball is in my top five for sure. Um, maybe top three. And you're, it is about baseball, but you're right. It goes deeper. My favorite baseball movie of all time. And f- funny enough, I did a seven minute story about a little bit about this is Field of Dreams and Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner, James Earl Jones is one of and has some of the greatest speeches in that movie about baseball. And it blends um, sort of like a ghost story and the history of America's game, um, you know, Americana in the farmland and small town sort of centric storylines with a big sweeping, uh, with baseball really being the thing that drives the story. Uh, if you build it, they will come, uh, it, all those lines, man. And that gets me crying mm-hmm. every time I watch that, that movie. And I think it is probably the best baseball movie ever made. So if there's anybody that hasn't seen Field of Dreams, you got to go get it. You got to rent it right now because it's or however you watch it. You got to watch this incredible. I have not finished it. I started it once and it was like on TV 
once no. back when that was a thing and I've just <laughs> never gotten around to seeing it. But yeah, it's it's been on my list for a long time. And for what it's worth, I was intrigued with what I saw. But yeah, that's that's one of my you know list of shame ones that I just have to see that. I also need to see Major League. So there's a couple baseball movies that are kind of like classics that I'm missing. So I'll definitely let you know, Aaron, how what I think about uh, um, Field of Dreams when I catch it. Sounds good. Okay, so let's move on to our point two section where we talk about some of the other stuff that we've been watching. So Aaron, briefly, what have you been watching? So I just got to, I'll tell you, I have no filter on this. I've been deep. Can it be a television series? Yeah, so is mine. Yeah, okay, whatever cool. you want. I've been watching Mad About You like you couldn't ever believe. The series <laughs> Mad About You with Paul Reiser. I actually tweeted at him the other night and he liked my tweet because I was like, Paul, I'm sitting here for 14 straight days after my, you know, I have a long day. I'm doing podcasting and my fiance and I are watching Mad About You on Amazon Prime. They added it. Pretty recently, I think it was a couple months ago. And so now we're just binging Mad About You. That's been fantastic. The other one uh, documentary is a limited series that I saw that's pretty popular on Netflix. I'm probably getting it wrong, but it's about the art heist. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Painter and the Thief? I think so. I think that's what it is, but it's a limited series about the the greatest art heist that ever happened. Actually, in Boston. That's that's something different. Yeah. Yeah, it takes place in Boston. And um, and, and so I got it. Sorry, I don't have the title on that, but I was... But that's, I think it was in the top five selection on, on Netflix if people were watching. That was, that was really, really good. Um, and I actually, my, I love watching series uh, later, like after they mm-hmm. air, so I don't have to wait for all the time yeah. <laughs> to pass. So it was probably about three or four months ago, but I actually finished Game of Thrones after everybody First else time? did. First time. Oh, wow. wow. And I just finished it. And so I'm like, I'm deep into it and I'm st- I'm mad about this and the last episode, this, this, and everyone's like, bro, like this happened like years ago. We're, <laughs> we're already past this, but um, no, I like yeah. doing that. I did that with the Sopranos too. Um, I was in college at the time the Sopranos were on. And then when I was in New York acting, it had got released to DVD uh, back when blockbusters were around. Uh, and I went to blockbuster and I, I watched all of the Sopranos within like three weeks. Um, so I like that. So a lot of the stuff I'm watching is actually stuff that has been out for a while. Yeah. But that's I kind of operate on a delay. Um, but the Mad About You series, man, if you're into that kind of stuff, it's it's pretty cool. It's nice, <laughs> lighthearted, and fun right before you go to sleep. Yeah. I feel like there's just so much TV all the time, right? That like you can never watch everything right when it starts. So it is kind of cool to go back and see something, especially things that happened like three or four years ago. That feels yeah. sort of a sweet spot to me to, to discover something that sort of went under the radar or that some people were talking about, but wasn't in your social circle or whatever. I, I really like doing that. The one TV show I wanted to shout out that I've been watching lately is sort of similar to that. I think it was one of Apple TV Plus. Is that what it's called? Apple TV Plus? Yeah. It's flagship shows called For All Mankind. I don't know if you've heard of this show, but it is a um, space show where the premise of the show is that it's an alternate history of the space race in the 60s and the 70s and so on that asks the question, what would happen to the space race if the Soviets had landed on the moon before the United States? And so then it causes a reaction of the U.S. to panic and freak out and invest more money into the space race and do all these different things. This show moves so quickly sometimes jarringly quickly um i'm not even through the first season yet 
but there's like a two-year time jump at one point, just instantly halfway through an episode. And so this show has a huge scope that it's working with. It's very sprawling. It um, There's all sorts of characters that are coming in for certain episodes and then leaving for a while. Um, I'm really excited about it because like space is just intrinsically easy to make captivating, easy to make suspenseful and compelling. And then because it's an Apple TV Plus show, it has a really nice budget. So it makes it very easy to enjoy as well. Um, and they go a lot of places that you wouldn't expect. It, it sort of starts as this NASA's men will be men kind of thing and then quickly says, well, actually, what if we started looking at female space astronauts and how does that change the timeline of history if we introduce female astronauts earlier in the 60s or the 70s instead of when eventually female astronauts became a thing. And so it's it's really it's really cool and a really interesting show that I would definitely recommend if you're into that sort of like high concepty sort of um alternate history stuff. That's a great pick. I'm going to have to look at it. Is it it's current it is Apple T plus TV like that's where you have to watch it now, correct? <laughs> yeah, it's like okay. an Apple TV plus exclusive show. The first season came out whenever Apple TV Plus came out, which okay. may have just been a year ago or mm. it may have been two years. I I don't know. Time, you know, whatever. I was just saying, you know, two years went like that in the show. I guess right. kind of two years just went like that in my life, too. But um, they are now in their second season. So I'm about uh, like I would say three fourths through season one. And I'm really enjoying it. It's not the most consistent show. I think sometimes they like they struggle with how to properly calibrate certain characters where they'll come off a little too harsh to be enjoyable or they'll have characters that are really likable at one moment and then incredibly unlikable at another moment and it's sort of like well, what are you doing here where what am i holding on to here but but you know overall still fantastic show that's uh for all mankind do you like space shows are you a fan of space movies and things like that in general I really like space movies. I find space shows to be a very double-edged sword because if they're done right, they're done great, right? But I find that shows tend to skimp on the budget and really poor special effects will take me out of a show very quickly. Um, so like some of my favorite movies, like, you know, um, The Martian, I adore because that looks so great mm -hmm. and it's so fun and it's so easily gripping. But I don't really watch like Battlestar Galactica or anything like that. Um, I hope I didn't just piss off a whole bunch of people no, listening because I know that I do, show is highly I, revered. It is a great show. That was a great show. But you're right there. I, I'm a big space show fan. Solid Galactica, big Star Trek guy um, and all that stuff there. I liked, uh, of course, you know, like uh, uh, Interstellar uh, was probably my yeah. favorite movie ever um, from a space perspective. But they've done some really good ones. Um, At Astra. Ad Astra was very underrated, I thought. I thought oh, that yeah. experience was very beautiful. I've watched that over and over again. That's a very underappreciated film. It's, um, a, it's a pro Brad Pitt podcast today. It is. It's he, <laughs> He's one of my favorite actors. He, yeah. Actually, all of these he, podcasts are pro Brad Pitt. Who are we saying? Hey, Who are if, we kidding? Have you, have you seen uh, A River Runs Through It? No. It, so we'll end with this. If you're a Brad Pitt fan and you want to see him, not only a young Brad Pitt, but a Brad Pitt who's really just... He was just so compelling. It's a one of my favorite movies directed by Robert Redford called A River Runs Through It. I don't know the name of the novelist who wrote the short story, but it's a beautiful story about kids growing up 
I think it's in the 40s, 50s, maybe 30s. I can't remember exactly the time period, but um, they were growing up in Montana and their father was a minister. And again, it's a small town narrative of two brothers who love each other, but have intrinsically different personalities. And Brad Pitt is sort of the wild brother in this small town. And his Mm. performance is, it's unbelievable. Uh, I would recommend A River Runs Through It. Cool. I'll check that out too. All right. Well, this has been our review of Rookie of the Year. Aaron, thanks for joining me. Uh, Is there anything specific you'd like to plug here? Do you want to tell people about Seven Minute Stories? Yeah, that's cool. And like I said, one, I wish people just see Rookie of the Year. I think if you give it it a (laughs) shot and see what your reaction is. Um, And the reason why we we did this little episode uh, crossover with Evergreen Podcast was that I told uh, one of my seven minute stories on my podcast was about the Rookie of the Year. So if people want to listen to that, they just got to go to sevenminutestoriespod.com or just find seven minute stories wherever you listen to podcasts. And then I think once they listen to that, um, I think we're at a, episode 128 right now, and I do a new seven-minute story every week. And wow. I think if they like that one, they might dive into the other ones. And I don't know if you know this, but the way that I tell stories, I don't write anything down. Uh, the, my process literally is to go into a closet upstairs with some soundproofing, <laughs> and I press record. I have the story in my head, and I just tell it. So there is that sort of stream of consciousness feel. You feel I've had people say like, Oh, I didn't know what was going to happen next. Or like, I didn't know where you're going. Like a lot of times I don't know either, (laughs) Uh, but we end up at the end. And usually it's something that people so far with the growth of the show, people seem to enjoy. Um, And in fact, I don't know if I mentioned this, but when we put rookie of the year out, when we released it, Thomas Ian Nicholas, the actor who played Henry found the show, loved it, and then shared it with all of his social media. Oh, that's awesome. So that was a cool uh, full circle moment where he was like, man, love this. So I'm actually trying to right now get him to do an interview with me to do a follow up to rookie of the year. So I'll let you know if that if that comes together. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, as Aaron said, you can find uh, seven minute stories wherever you find podcasts. But I'll also include a link to um, seven minute stories dot com in the show notes. Thanks for joining me, Aaron. Hey, thanks, man. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when I release new episodes, you can follow me on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to the podcast via email by contacting MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast online at EvergreenPodcasts.com slash Movie-Marathoners or wherever you listen to podcasts. So please subscribe or write a review if you like the podcast, and any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time for a TBD topic. As always, stay tuned for new episodes by following me on Twitter. Until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. 
You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chapotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.